0: God knows, I am no student of Shakespeare's sonnets, um, but I've always thought that the story about the sonnets, that some of them are dedicated to the fair youth, and some of them are dedicated to a dark lady, a mysterious dark lady. That definition seems reductive to me somehow, and not in a funny way. <laughs> um, now, fortunately, I am talking to a scholar of the Shakespeare sonnets, uh, Paul Edmondson, who's the Head of Research and Knowledge of the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust, who I think, if I'm reading your introduction correctly, you agree with me, is that right? I do. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, number 722, Shakespeare's Sonnets Unabridged. (laughs) is the head of research and knowledge and director of the Stratford-upon-Avon Poetry Festival for the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust. And together with Professor Sir Stanley Wells, author and honorary president of the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust, has just published a collection of Shakespeare's sonnets entitled All the Sonnets of Shakespeare, which collects Shakespeare's 154 standalone sonnets, along with most of the other sonnets Shakespeare included in his plays, and has arranged them all for the very first time in the order in which they were probably written. Paul was gracious enough to speak with me this week about his groundbreaking new collection, and he started off by telling me how much he and his co-author and co-editor,
1: Sir Stanley Wells, agree with me. Stanley Wells and I, who have co-edited this new edition of Shakespeare's Sonnets at Cambridge University Press, have for many years now thought that that narrative that you've just nicely outlined about a dark lady and a fair youth and a rival poet or a young man as is often called is reductive is overly simplistic and when you start just to probe it just a little you see that it began really with the great Shakespeare scholar Edmund Malone in the late 18th century and then it was augmented and went through the 19th century and it was a story therefore which was brought to the sonnets. It's, it's simply not there this this is a collection of poems that was published in 1609 called Shakespeare's Sonnets and then the strapline never before imprinted and they are as we show in our new edition uh, a, a collection of poems which he was producing over 27 years and they're not addressed to the same individual, many of them. In fact, many of them are not addressed to individuals. So if I just give you a a, a few little statistics to to, to illustrate this, there's 154 sonnets in that 1609 volume. Only 121 of them are to people. Mm. 84 of them, 84 of those 121 could be addressed to either a male or female, and definitely not to the same male or female because of the terms of the address, by which I mean, phrases like whether you is used or, or thou or thee are used. So different people, different levels of, of relationship and, and personality at work. Only 14 of them, of the 154, can confidently be said, yes, these are addressed to a male subject. And again, not necessarily to the same man. Possibly there are as many as 27, which are addressed to a male. And that number jumps when you look at the context around some of the poems, the place in the collection, and the feeling that oh probably they are addressed to a man. So the maximum that could be assigned to a male subject is 27. For a female, it's definitely seven, possibly 10. And then six are to abstract concepts, by which I mean, for example, 146 is addressed to the poet's own soul. Sonnet 100 is addressed to the muse. Sonnets 19 and 123 are addressed to time. Sonnets 137 and 56 are addressed to love. Two sonnets are letters. They're Shakespearean correspondence. You know, and we often think, oh, there's no, no surviving letter by Shakespeare. Well, there are surviving letters, and they're both sonnets. And one is sonnet, one is sonnet 26, and one is sonnet 77. And sonnet 77 is a little bit of correspondence written to accompany an almanac as a gift to the recipient. And Sonnet 26 is a sonnet letter which accompanied another piece of writing, possibly to a patron, it begins, Lord of my love. And then 25 of the 154 are what we might call personal meditations. And they include, for example, the great meditation on lust, which is Sonnet 129, or meditations on time, or meditations on a woman. Or on a man, or a relationship with a man, or a relationship with a woman. But these are first person, private little soliloquies, if you like. And there are 25 of them. And then to make up 154, two of them are actually translations of a Greek epigram which found its way into Latin and which Shakespeare was translating. And it's the, the last two sonnets printed, 153 and 154 are both translations of the same epigram, but different attempts to translate it on Shakespeare's part. So so that's a really mixed bag of poems. It's definitely not telling a story. It's definitely not a sequence. Mm -hmm. Um, And therefore it stands out from all other sonnet sequences of of, of the period which do tell a sort of story, which are addressed to individuals, fictional or thinly veiled fictional individuals, um, and, and have that kind of consistency, which the narrative you started off with reminding us about, has tried to bring to Shakespeare's sonnets. And it was never really there. And it's amazing, Austin, how many critics over decades have just fallen into it. And found it and perpetuated it and and it's infiltrated into Shakespearean biography so that people telling us the story of Shakespeare's life actually use the story brought to the sonnets as a way of telling us about the life in relation to the sonnets. so it's it's really done some damage that narrative so Stanley Wells and I wanted to try and remove it so we gave the sonnets a really good shaking up by which and by which I mean is we put them into chronological order uh, for the first time ever, and, and we've inserted within that chronology the sonnets which Shakespeare's producing as part of his dramas, epilogues, prologues, bits of dialogue, monologues, within the plays themselves, and we've put those in at the relevant chronological points. So, in fact, all the sonnets of Shakespeare, which is our new book, includes now 182 sonnets, whereas previously we've thought there were only 154 sonnets by Shakespeare.
0: Well, and, and that's there are so many fascinating aspects of 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 the collection and the and the scholarship you've done about the collection. I love that you have uh, put put his sonnets in the context of a writer over time, over many years. So, the, uh, and including the sonnets that he that he weaved into his plays. I also love the notion that the sonnets were not just written in a burst of a couple of years during a plague because the plays. Because he couldn't write plays anymore, you know. This was over the course of 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 a lifetime work of professional work, and I, I, that's a much more interesting and compelling story to me about what these sonnets it it, it reveal if and if they reveal anything.
1: It's very exciting because it suggests, well, it it, it doesn't suggest; it shows that this was a really important form, poetic form for Shakespeare. He couldn't let it go. It, It wasn't that it was something that he was writing just when it was fashionable. He kept writing them. Um, I mean, okay. Let's you know, he wrote most of them when when the form was fashionable in the uh, early to mid 1590s. But he's still writing them beyond that, as far as we know, and certainly in the plays beyond that as well. Yeah. And and so and, and because the collection wasn't published until 1609, we must allow for the possibility that he was revising them up until um, that that moment. We can come to the onto the the status of the 1609 publication and how Shakespeare might relate to that um, later on, if you like, but. I think it's, I mean, the earliest ones, the two translations, it's really strange. And and we we posit that they were the earliest surviving sonnets by Shakespeare because they could be schoolboy exercises or or memories of the kind of things that he was learning at grammar school. Oh, translate this this, uh, Greek epigram, which is now in Latin, into English, into poetic form. And he does it twice. And 154 is the earlier translation. Uh-huh. So it's printed first in the volume, and one five three is the later translation. This was demonstrated in the nineteen forties that one of those sonnets is a, is an earlier translation of the other. He was revising the translation as if a schoolmaster had said, "Well, actually, now go away and think about it." So we put those first in the collection, which shakes things up because they're the last printed in the sixteen oh nine collection. And then we get sonnet one hundred forty five, which not until nineteen seventy one was this identified as being about Anne Hathaway. I hate from Hate Away, she threw and saved my life, saying, Not you, is the couplet. And Hate Away and Hathaway were alternate pronunciations of of his wife's maiden name. Mm -hmm. And Andrew Gurr identified that in 1971. It's like, how can we get to 1971 without this being spotted before? And it's because of the power of that narrative you mentioned. And for years, that was just thought to be, oh, it's one of the sonnets, The Dark Lady you know, um, and it's about his wife. So, and, 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 you know, we put that early because it, it could be one of Shakespeare's earliest poems around about the occasion he married her in 1582. We have talked
0: before about, uh, the idea that, sh- that w- we're coming to understand that Shakespeare was our, maybe our first literary commuter, that he traveled back and forth between Stratford and London more than we have, uh, heretofore suspected. Um, but you talk about that. The, there's a there's a there's maybe some evidence of this in the rhythm of the sonnets, in the iambic pentameter. Could you talk about that a little bit? Well,
1: that's the way, the way into that one, Austin, I think, is is a pair of sonnets, sonnets fifty and fifty-one, which are written from the perspective of being on a horse. Oh. Hmm. Um, and I say a pair because one of the things we've identified really clearly is that there are nineteen pairs in the 154 sonnets. So although it's not a sequence overall, it does break into pairs and it breaks into mini sequences within the collection. So if there are 19 pairs, that accounts for thirty-eight sonnets in the fifteen oh four collection, written on, you know, diverse occasions. But fifteen and fifty-one, and by pair I mean it's clear that one sonnet follows on from the other. So he's writing a sonnet, then writing a sequel to it, which is quite exciting. Yeah. And so the the 50 and 51 are, we call them the horseback sonnets. Um, (laughs) And one of them begins, you know, 50. How heavy do I journey on the way when what I seek, my weary travel's end, doth teach that ease and that repose to say, thus far the miles are measured from my friend. The beast that bears me, tired with my woe, plods dully on to bear that weight in me, as if by some instinct the wretch did know his rider loved not speed being made from thee. And then it continues, but he's on a horse. And then um, the second sonnet starts, thus can my love excuse the slow offence of my dull bearer when from thee I speed. So he's still on the horse. Um, And so Shakespeare spent quite a lot of time on on horseback as as people did who were commuting and travelling in the period. And of course, Stratford to London is about, Three days commute, two if you do it really quickly. and he was shuttling backwards and forwards as a commuter. why? Because his freehold and his family uh, was were in Stratford at New Place, in the in the lovely house that, that he owned and, and started to own from when he was thirty three. Um, but his professional working life meant that he had to be in London. So he was negotiating these two, these two centres of his life, both of which were important to him. Um, and yes, I think that travelling on a horseback and knowing how poets work, knowing how writers are, mm-hmm. you know, when you're standing in the post office queue or you're doing the gardening and you're working out the bit of the sonnet that you're composing or the speech that you, you know you've got to compose, a, a, a speech about someone who's just discovered a dead body and, 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 and what does that sound like and what sorts of things they're going to say. Well, you've got plenty of time to compose on horseback or while you're doing the gardening or, you, or standing in the post office queue. Um, and that's how writers um, work on the detail of, of of words and phrasing, and especially on horseback, because you've got the I am of the trot 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 of the horse, with the rhythm you know the rhythm of the horse could easily match the rhythm of of the iambic pentameter. The dum bum 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 as you're going between Stratford and London. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day that art more lovely and more temperate and so on and so on and so on on the horse. And so I think that's very compelling. And uh, writers do compose in their heads and they, then they want immediately pen and paper so they don't forget the thoughts. Right. So <laughs> right. he'll have had to have had some kind of uh, writing influence with him as he travelled. and probably kept stopping on, on, on the way and writing down mm-hmm. lines or phrases or quatrains or couplets. For these poems, as part of what he was doing.
0: Yes, I mean, and 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 we know this from the from that documentary Monty Python on the Holy Grail, <laughs> with the clapping of the coconuts. <laughs> What's
1: good, y'all? My name is Devon Glover, also known as the Sonnet Man. I'm a rapper, poet, teacher, actor, director. And playwright, and I'm happy to be listening to the Reduced Shakespeare podcast. Peace and love, y'all.
0: Where can you RSC the RSC? Right now, the only place to see the remote Shakespeare company is online. We've created a brand new page at our website, reducedshakespeare.com, and a playlist on our YouTube page, where right this second you can watch us perform many of our epic abridgments from the comfort of your own shelter. You can also grab your own copy of Pop-Up Shakespeare, written by me and Reed Martin, and beautifully illustrated by Jenny Mazels. It's on sale worldwide, and you can find links to independent bookstores in the U.S. and the U.K. on our website. And now back to my conversation with Paul Edmondson of the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust about his new book, All the Sonnets of Shakespeare. One of my favorite uh, sonnets is, uh, I think it's 138. Um, uh, Are
1: you going to read that for us? uh, Well,
0: well, I I, I could. I could. I mean, I love that it's one of my favorite sonnets and yet you've put it sort of early on. It's the one that reads, when my love swears that she is made of truth, I do believe her, though I know she lies, <laughs> that she might think me some untutored youth, unlearned in the world's false subtleties. Thus, vainly thinking that she thinks me young, although she knows my days are past the best, simply I credit her false speaking tongue, on both sides thus is simple truth suppressed. But wherefore says she not she is unjust, and wherefore say not I that I am old? Oh, love's best habit is in seeming trust, and age in love loves not to have years told. Therefore I lie with her and she with me, and in our faults by lies we flattered be.
1: Oh, it's a wonderful sonnet. Now, this is one of the first ones published, because two of the sonnets that got into the 169 collection, versions of them were published in 1599 in a book called The Passionate Pilgrim, and this is one of them. And in our book, we, we include both versions. And it's quite interesting to see Shakespeare's revising mind at work, you know, while he's been on horseback or in the post office queue. <laughs> um, and um, this, the first, I mean, the first thing I would say about it is it's, it's not addressed to anybody. It's about someone. It's right. a meditation. It's, it's, it's his working through a relationship with, with his mistress. I see nothing uh, darkly coloured about her. And yet this was thought to be about the dark woman or to a dark woman or about a dark woman. There's nothing about that in this sonnet. It's not addressed to anybody and we don't know who it's about.
0: Well, the thing I love about it is, you know, I'm, I'm now a man who's just turned 60 and just celebrated my 31st wedding anniversary. And it speaks to me as a person who's been a lo- in a long relationship. Like, yeah, we, yeah, we tell each other we're beautiful. <laughs> we tell each other lots of things and that's and by our lies we flatter we flatter each other um it seems very wise and so that's the thing that strikes me is from um it's from a relatively relatively youthful shakespeare writing these words of wisdom
1: yes that's interesting isn't it and it might be it might be that he's imitating one of his parents i mean who knows sure. um uh, in our in our book we we highlight what we call dramatic analogies. So if a sonnet has genuinely reminded us of a moment in the plays and one of the characters in the plays, we just give that a little asterisk in one of the indexes and we make a note of it on the page. And that one reminded us of Antony possibly speaking about Cleopatra, you know, that, that sort of you know, middle-aged, oh, they've both been at this for a while now and there's a way of making the relationship work and there's a, there's a wit absolutely still there. Um, and a nudge and a wink and a sexiness still there. I mean, that wonderful last line. Therefore, I li-, those last lines, therefore I lie with her and she with me and in our lies and in our faults by lies we flattered be. So lying down on bed together, speaking untruths together. Yeah, and it, it's, it's so knowing and it's so Shakespearean that you're having both possibilities co-present.
0: Absolutely. Um, well, and, and, and you, uh, you talked about one of the other fantastic elements of this book is that, um, the footnotes at the bottom of each sonnet, you can, you can look up if your favorite is number 138, for instance, you can look in the index and you see, oh, 138, that's on page 66. And, um, 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 uh, And then at the end of the book, you do sort of prose translations of each sonnet um, and you encourage the reader to read it out loud and to come up with your own translation of what you think the sonnets mean. And I love that approach. There's so many tricks and tools just in this slim little volume of how one can better appreciate the sonnets.
1: Well, thank you. And so, this, so, so at the foot of each page, we've got like a summary of each sonnet, which we we, we call a kind of thumbnail sketch. So okay. the one that you just read a moment ago is summarised as, my loved one and I both know we are lying to each other. She about her faithfulness, I about my age, but our lies help our relationship to function. Um, and then at the back, yes, we've got these prose prose paraphrases and they're deliberately literal paraphrases and this came about because when we were working on the book which took about two two and a half years Stanley and I would talk about them a lot and one day he said to me you know Paul these are really difficult poems and I said I know and if you and I think that what about our readers and as we were glossing them as we were choosing you know which words to give explanations of at the foot of the page we would go to other editions because everyone sits on the shoulders of giants with these things and so often austin i'd go to an, a, a previous edition of the sonnets and he just wouldn't tell me what i wanted to know it wouldn't mm. tell me what a line meant it would tell me where else shakespeare uses the word to oh, see henry the fourth part one you know act four scene three line 25 oh that's that's only partly useful to me, <laughs> right, right. Um, um, and but most of the time it wouldn't tell you what these poems actually mean. Well, they don't tell you. Most editions don't tell you what the poems actually mean. You're left ending for yourself. So we thought we must give the reader as much help as possible and make these poems as explicable as possible. And therefore we came up with the notion of writing literal, literal paraphrases. Literal why? Because we didn't want them to read too smoothly. We wanted them to somehow replicate the awkwardness of expression which is often present in the poems and the often surreal imagery and thought that we find in these remarkable poems and we wanted to put that over in in the prose versions of them and so if you, the the thought is also if you read you know half a dozen prose paraphrases one after the other it might just give you a sense of how shakespeare's mind is working and how, and how he's thinking when you read them in, you know, prose, modern English.
0: And it, um, highlights, and it highlights the skill and the poesy of what he's been
1: able uh, to about. Compressing into these 14 lines when you have to sort of unpack them and say what they actually mean. Yeah. Um, and yes, we would love readers to argue against them, kick against them, because our paraphrases are only one version. And, you know, for some people would say you should never do that with poetry. Well, you know, you can. And it gets you quite it gets you quite, it gets you quite a long way actually, yeah. and, and and nothing's going to happen to the poem just because we paraphrased it. We hope that the poet, the readers will understand and love the poems even more because of the paraphrase. That's
0: it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, except not really. Paul's and my conversation continued wonderfully, and I'll share that with you in just a moment. But first, you can order and buy all the sonnets of Shakespeare wherever you order and buy uh, handsome new publications. Then send us your reordering of the sonnets via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can also find us and interact with other fans on our dedicated podcast page on Facebook at RSC Podcast. On Instagram, at Reduced Shakespeare Company, or on my preferred platform on Twitter, at Reduced. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Austin Titchener, and you can follow Paul on Twitter, at Paul underscore Edmondson. Thanks, as always, to Fair Dark Rival Lady, Matthew Croak, Web Services by Ginger Power Limited, and Music by John Weber and Garage Band. A random fan shout-out this week goes to Doug James, who lives in Canada. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to Devon Glover, a.k.a. The Sonnet Man. Check out his website and videos and recordings at sonnetman.com. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. Please stay safe, stay home, and keep your masks on. I'm Austin Titchener, 722-2066 of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. Paul, thank you for this new edition. Please thank Sir Stanley for
1: us. I will, thank you.
0: And I will encourage everybody to get it because on top of everything else, you know it's a great edition of the sonnets because it has a gold ribbon.
1: To... Oh, the gold ribbon. Like a gold seam running through Shakespeare.
0: Indeed, that's how you know. It's proof, the proof is in the pudding right there. And, li-
1: and lilac end pages, Austin, what about those?
0: Oh, ooh, I... you're right. Well, and we, and we didn't even talk, speaking of Lilac, we didn't even talk about Shakespeare's bisexuality, which oh. seems so clear to me. And yet you're right in the introduction, you're people want to make, no, he's absolutely this, he's absolutely that. No, he's absolutely kind of fluid.
1: Well, the, the, the narrative that was brought to the sonnets was a safe one in the sense that it was dramatic enough for it not to be real. And it allowed Shakespeare a sort of bisexual alibi oh, there's a phase, oh, there's a dark lady, oh, it's just a poetic construct, oh, it's like body and soul, oh, it's like classical thinking, blah, blah, blah. and And it allowed Shakespeare to um, be safe yeah. in terms of yeah. how we think about his sexuality, even though, paradoxically, the narrative that you outlined is a bisexual one, right? Yeah. And, and sonnet, sonnet 144 begins, two loves I have of comfort and despair, which like two spirits to suggest me still the better angel is a man right fair, the worse a spirit a woman colored ill. Now that's where the narrative came from, but that's only in one sonnet. Yeah. There are two other love triangles in the collection. Sonnets 133 and 134 is about, are about a love triangle. And sonnets 40 to 42 are about a love triangle and not necessarily the same love triangle. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be therefore abundantly clear that Shakespeare was bisexual and Anyone who says, well, how can you say that? It's, well, because these are personal poems. They're not all personal. They're not all equally personal, but some of them are. And, for example, those ones on horseback are, seem to me to be personal poems, which is why we think clearly that Shakespeare didn't want the sonnets to be published in 1609, mm-hmm. that somebody got hold of his very carefully copied out book or album of these poems, which he'd ordered, I think the ordering is Shakespearean because it's, it's, it's too clearly ordered as a collection with pairs and mini sequences and the first 17 being about procreation and so on and um, only the ones which can be confidently addressed to a man are in the first 126 and then only the ones which can be confidently addressed to a woman are between 127 and 152. Yeah. Um, so there's an ordering mind at work but I just think the... I think his heart probably sank like, with, oh no, they've got my sonnets. Can't do anything about it. Gone, done They're out. They're out. And I think that they're too intimate, some of them, and 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 some of them are, are too much about sex, yeah, for them to have passed muster as only literary works in the period. I mean, Sonnet 151 in which the turning point of the sonnet, which always happens on line nine, or usually happens on line nine, is when the poet is describing experiencing um, an erection at thinking about the female lover in that sonnet's uh, case, and then rising at thy name, to point out thee to be his triumphant prize. No other sonnets like that in the period. It's too intimate, it's too sexy. And, and, And sonnet 136 ends with the phrase, my name is Will. And in fact, seven sonnets throughout the collection pun on William's first name, Will. 22, 57, 89, 134, 135, 136, 143. These poems have Shakespeare's DNA in them. So don't tell me they're not personal people because they are and, and, and therefore they, they contain secrets, which we'll, we'll never know fully about, but they're there and they take us as close as we can get to Shakespeare's personalities. Therefore, we hope that in thinking about them differently as we've done in the book, our book will eventually have an effect on how we understand Shakespearean biography.
0: This podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company, reducing expectations since 1981. Go to reduceshakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less.